0: Well, do you believe in the resurrection of the Christ? That's certainly an important question uh, for us to answer as we consider the stories written about his life and death and resurrection in Scripture. And we talked about that a bit last week, about all of the historical and circumstantial and personal validation of the resurrection accounts that we have. So we won't go back through all of that this morning. And if you uh, missed last week's message, by the way, it's entitled The Ransom. That's available on our website But today I'd like to take that question a step further uh, because it's one thing to say that we believe in the resurrected Christ. It's something entirely different to have personally encountered uh, the resurrected Christ. And so another essential question really that we should be asking is, have you encountered the risen Christ? I find that question to be equally important because to know him to be changed and transformed by him. And I'm talking about real change, to have your life actually changed by Christ. We must not only believe that he's alive today, but we must also have a personal encounter with him. Okay, the atoning work on our behalf was his ransom at the cross. The validation of that atoning work was his resurrection at the tomb and and what happened beyond there. Because he could have simply risen from the grave, he could have ascended directly to the Father, and his atoning work would have been just as real. Instead, however, he rose from the grave, according to the accounts that we have, and then walked again on the earth for 40 days. Why? To be certain that those who knew him saw him and talked with him and ate with him and had communion with him and walked with him and watched him perform miraculous signs. He remained on the earth for a period of time to validate his atoning work before mankind by allowing those who believed in him before his death before his resurrection, to encounter him personally after his death and his resurrection. And the profound effect that those uh, post-resurrection encounters had on his followers cannot be overstated and it cannot be denied. All right, the, the same men who just days before the resurrection were denying that they knew him, And running scared for their lives, went on to radically proclaim him as the Christ while staring death and the most unthinkable persecutions in the face after the resurrection. The same men who just before his death and resurrection couldn't even get along with one another. They were fighting over who would be the greatest among them. Those same men went on to establish the Christian church in complete unity under relentless attacks from both the Jews and the Gentiles after his resurrection. A church, by the way, which has grown to become the largest religion in the world. This was no small uprising that fizzled out like a flash in the pan that we've seen with so many other religions. The same men who were seeking position and power and prosperity through their relationship with Jesus before His death and resurrection went on to sacrifice their own lives for the sake of Christ after His resurrection. You see, it's, it's not that His work on the cross would have been disqualified had he not appeared before men after he rose from the dead. But can you see the effect on the world? Because he did appear before men after he rose from the dead. The difference was not only that he actually did rise from the grave, the difference was also that they had a personal encounter with him after he rose from the grave. The the resurrection, the resurrected living Christ must be encountered not just believed, to have a truly life-changing effect. Those disciples' lives were lit on fire once they encountered the risen Christ, but not before. Before the resurrection, they believed, but they were timid. They were often confused. They sought after the wrong things. They fought amongst themselves. They doubted continually. They failed to act, and at times, even when they did act, it was often uh, with, out of misunderstanding. After the resurrection, once they encountered the risen Christ, they were completely different people. It's the same for us today. People not only need to believe him, they need to encounter him if their lives are to be truly changed. And we can learn about him, we can study his word, we can even believe that all of the stories written about him are true but it is only after we actually encounter Him that we're fundamentally changed because that is when everything that we believe is validated in our own lives. And so we're going to talk about the resurrection today, the validation that it brought to all of His work on earth and the need for us to not only believe in that resurrected Christ, but the need for us to encounter Him personally. So let's pick the story back up uh, at Luke chapter 23. And we'll finish that chapter this morning starting with verse 50 and move on from there. This is just after Jesus has died. So uh, Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. That's referring to the crucifixion of the Christ. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked uh, for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So this wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, uh, Joseph, asks uh, asks Pilate for Jesus' body to prepare it for burial because he was a follower of Christ according to Matthew in chapter 27 and verse 57 of his gospel account. And also because he had a tomb nearby. Luke says that Joseph was from Arimathea, uh, which we're told by Eusebius, who was a fourth century Roman historian, it was the same place as Ramah, which is one of the cities of the allotment uh, of Benjamin. It was about f- five miles from Jerusalem or so. And so Joseph wants to give the body of Jesus a proper burial, and he has just a place to do it. He has his own tomb, which were typically reserved for the rich. This was a wealthy man, and it had been cut into stone in a garden near Calvary. And customarily the bodies of crucified criminals were left on their crosses to rot. They would just leave them there for people to see or to be eaten by wild animals. But the Passover season was upon them and so the Jews were not interested in having dead bodies on display during the Passover season. As well, uh, it was known that Romans would at times grant the corpses of people who were crucified to friends or relatives for proper burial. And so knowing all of that, Joseph asks for and is granted Jesus his body, and so he wraps it in a linen shroud according to custom, and he lays it in his own tomb, notably, by the way, fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 9, which says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth striking accuracy in the fulfillment of prophecies of the Christ from hundreds of years earlier. So let's keep reading now at Luke uh, chapter 24, and uh, we'll start with the first 12 verses. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So these ladies go to the burial site of Jesus, and they're not going there to see whether or not Jesus' body is still there. They have no expectation other than to find his dead body that had yet to be properly uh, prepared. Again, custom dictated that bodies in the first century were wrapped with strips of lemon, uh, linen, linen excuse me, and then smeared with um, spices and aloes and ointments. But Jesus' body was taken down and put into the tomb in haste because of the coming Sabbath which prohibited them from working on the body that day. So they're coming back to the tomb now with the spices they had prepared to finish the process of properly interring his body for burial. And then they arrive, but he's not there. And there are these two angels there who explain to them that he is in fact alive and well. And so they go back and tell the disciples who aren't buying it, aside from the fact that it sounds like a tall tale, women in the first century were not considered to be credible witnesses, which I find so ironic that Christ made the decision knowingly to reveal himself first to women. It's a beautiful picture. of of how he created us and the revelation to these women first. But they didn't believe the women, so most of the disciples uh, dismissed their report outright. And yet their story was at least compelling enough to Peter to cause him not uh, to just go to the tomb, but verse 12 says he ran to the tomb. And of course, Peter finds it empty as well, along with the empty grave cloth that Jesus was wrapped in. Now, it's worth noting here that every single symbol of death From the beginning of the crucifixion process until the end, that should have held a body was devoid of any sign of death. All right? The the resurrection validated Jesus' victory over death. In fact, every proof, every single shred of evidence that could possibly be used to prove that Jesus remained deceased came up empty. The cross that he was crucified on was empty, the tomb that he was buried in was empty. The grave clothes that he was wrapped in were empty. Every single place that one could point to to try and produce a body was empty. There was no body. And of course, that was all for for our benefit so that human beings could testify to other human beings that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. He didn't need the stone to be rolled away so he could get out of the tomb Right in, in uh, John chapter twenty, both in verses nineteen and twenty-six, we see Jesus either walk through walls to a place where the disciples were, or he was miraculously translated there, or at the very least, the locked doors were miraculously opened. In several places, including Luke twenty-four thirty-one, we see Jesus vanish from the presence of the disciples, and of course, in uh, in Acts eight in verses thirty-nine and forty, we see Philip the deacon supernaturally translated from one location to another the point being that the stone having been rolled away wasn't for Jesus's benefit it was for ours so that his friends could walk into that tomb and see for themselves that he was gone therefore then they could give a first-hand account of that empty tomb likewise the burial clothes Jesus could have walked out of that tomb and thrown those linen cloths anywhere into the, the bushes in a ditch, in a stream. They could have simply disappeared, but Jesus leaves them there, which is a strong indicator, by the way, that the body wasn't stolen as the Jews had said it was because someone stealing a body, first of all, wouldn't unwrap the linens from the body first. They certainly wouldn't take the time to fold up those linen grave clothes before leaving the tomb, and yet in John 27, he describes the cloth that was on Jesus' face as being folded up in a place by itself inside the tomb. So Jesus takes the burial clothes off, and then he takes the time to fold them up, or at least some of them. The stone is rolled back. The tomb is empty. The grave clothes are empty and neatly placed by themselves. And there are witnesses, at least five women, Peter and at least two Roman guards, as we see in chapter 8 of Matthew's account of the gospel. And all of these people, including the guards, testify that Jesus's body is gone. It's one thing for someone to make up a story. It's another for many different people coming to the same place at different times with different motivations. Remember, the guards had everything to lose by testifying that Jesus's body was gone. In fact, they could have been executed for dereliction of duty, but they all testify to the same thing. Jesus's body was gone. Like the cross, the tomb, and the grave clothes, death itself had been emptied. It had been emptied of its promise, emptied of its power over all of those who would forevermore call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus had achieved victory over death, which was validated by his resurrection. Not that he was the first to ever be resurrected from the dead, but his resurrection was different than any other. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we see Elijah raise a young boy from the dead in Zarephath. Uh, In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha raises a young boy from the dead. In uh, chapter 13 of 2 Kings, verses 20 and 21, as the Israelites were burying a dead man in haste, it says they threw him into Elisha's grave, and it says the moment the dead man's body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man came back to life and stood on his feet. Every time I read that passage, I think I'd have grabbed a femur or something and just taken it home, just in case. <laughs> Jesus, we know, raised several people from the dead, men and women and children, before his own resurrection. So when Jesus walks out of that tomb, that was by no means the first resurrection, but it was very different from all the rest because the others were only temporarily beneficial to the one being raised. Right? Death was still looming over them at some future date. Jesus' resurrection, however, was eternally beneficial to all who would ever follow him after that. Eternal life was victorious over death through Jesus' death and resurrection. And now for all of us, for all of us who follow Christ, physical death is just a beginning to the rest of our lives, which are now eternal in Christ. And all of that was validated. It was verified by those who encountered the empty cross and that empty grave and the empty grave clothes, okay? Let's keep reading our story, verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And he's just messing with them now. <laughs> they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and moreover, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Don't miss that little reference. See, they know what he said about dying and being raised three days later. And they're not seeing the evidence of that. So their hopes are dashed on the rocks. That's why they're standing there sad because it turns out in their minds that he's not who they thought he was. Moreover, verse 22, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as Jesus walks with these disciples, Talking with them about everything that has happened. He points them right back to the scriptures, first of all. Verse 27 says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, the resurrection validated the prophetic scriptures about Jesus. But notice how they could not fully grasp those scriptures until they encountered the resurrected Christ and so as they walk down the road he simply takes them through the scriptures and he shows them how those scriptures all point to him because until they encountered the risen Christ they simply could not grasp the truth fully of the word of God Okay, certainly we all have to come to a place of intellectual assent where we accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ as truth you have to get there there are written accounts of first-hand eyewitnesses. There is the absence of a body. There is certainly the work of the early church and evidence of changed lives throughout history. We could spend a sermon series on the evidences supporting that Christ was in fact divine and rose from the dead. There's a lot that we can point to to substantiate those claims of his resurrection. But at the end of the day, arriving at the place where we say, I know that this is true, From the deepest parts within myself, that's going to require faith. There's just no way around that. And yet we cannot even have faith until we have an encounter with him. If you've been here through our series in John, you'll remember that back in chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So not only does Jesus make it clear that we cannot have faith in God until we encounter God, which, by the way, is his work, not ours, but also Jesus ties that faith to resurrection. He says he will raise us up on the last day. That is to say, all who come to him, because they're being drawn by him, will be raised up on the last day. So we can only come to Christ when we encounter the Christ. And furthermore, we can't even fully grasp his word until we encounter him. The Apostle Paul tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but it is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians two fourteen through 16, okay? Until we encounter the resurrected Christ by way of His Spirit, we cannot fully grasp His Word or His ways. The risen Christ is the fulfillment of the Word of God, which means we cannot choose to believe one and reject the other, by the way, just as we cannot say that we have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. I'm so tired of hearing people say that. People who have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. That statement cannot be reconciled scripturally. There is no scriptural ground to stand on. Faith in the resurrected Christ is part and parcel with understanding, first of all, and then accepting the God breathed scriptures, and then living a life committed to Him and His holy church. If we say we accept the resurrection, then we must accept his word and all that it says about him, all of his teachings about the gospel and about the church, which is, of course, uh, going to have a profound ramification in our lives today once we've accepted that truth, if we truly accept it. I spent most of my life believing in Jesus, but I didn't follow him. I had a high view of Christ and a low view of the church, and I thought I knew everything. I didn't know anything not until I had an encounter with Christ that completely turned my life around. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that none of that can happen, none of it, until we have that encounter with him, okay? Let's finish our text for today, and we'll continue on, Uh, verses 28 through 35. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent." So he he went in with them to stay with them. And he was at the table with them. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. That had to be fun. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. It's the eleven now, right? Because Judas is out of the scene. Those who were with them also gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So finally, at the dinner table, their eyes were opened as they encountered the resurrected Christ. And for the first time, they knew without any doubt that he was God, that he was alive, and they could put all of their confidence in him and who he said he was. Okay, the resurrection validated his identity as God. And they needed that validation through this encounter because before this, their certainty about him was on shaky ground. Just before his death, in Matthew seventeen twenty-two, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then it says, And they were greatly distressed. You see, they got the part about him being killed, but that's all they got the whole I'm going to be raised on the third day part didn't really register at that point because they couldn't fully grasp the resurrected Christ until they actually encountered him later. Before the resurrection, their faith was shaky at best. As he was being led away to die, Jesus' disciples panicked. They fled in every direction. They were literally running for their lives, so deathly afraid of being even mentioned in the same sentence as Jesus that Peter, one of those who were closest to him, denies knowing him three times, even swearing and calling down curses on himself. It doesn't get much more serious than that when we talk about sin against Christ. How certain do you think they were in that moment that he was going to rise again and prove to the world that he really was God? J.R. Thompson once wrote, "...there was no predisposition in Christ's followers to accept the resurrection." Far from this, the evidence made way against doubtings, against skepticisms, we might say of the most obstinate nature. These foolish and slow-hearted men were almost the last people likely to credit the tale. And yet, if we fast forward to the book of Acts, and beyond that, we see these same people, these same disciples doing a complete 180. 180. They're radically preaching the gospel, including the resurrection, fearlessly defending the faith, willing to and for most of them actually dying in horrific ways for the sake of the gospel. Again, Thompson writes, how was it that this temperament, incredulous, despondent, so quickly gave way to one full of worship and great joy? How was it that such men gave up all, traveled hither and thither with the one message ever on their lips, many of them suffering death because they would maintain that the Christ who was crucified did rise, had had been seen by them, and is alive forevermore. What was the difference from the time Jesus was led away to die to the book of Acts and beyond? How were they now, all of them, completely fearless about preaching and defending the gospel the the difference is found in verses 32 through 35 that we just read you see many of them wanted to be anywhere but jerusalem around the time of the crucifixion event because jesus had just been killed and the jews were looking for his followers so they all went into hiding some in jerusalem but many leaving the area They were running scared and away from the city. But look what happens after they encounter the resurrected Christ. Again, verses 32 through 35. It says, They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. That in and of itself is a huge step of faith. And they found the eleven and those who were gathered with them together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The difference was the moment they encountered the risen Christ. That encounter changed everything for them. In verse 35, when it says he was known to them, that, that phrase was known in the ancient Greek language is the word uh, gnosko. It means to know absolutely or in the absolute sense. It was actually used at times as a Jewish idiom to refer to intimacy between two people. The point being that all doubt about who it was that they were encountering was removed. They absolutely knew in that moment of encounter with all confidence that Jesus Christ had in fact risen and was alive and well. That was the difference. That is what turned them from fearful to fearless. Men and women once terrified of being associated with Jesus, who just walked seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, full of sorrow at night, worried about being found outside. Now jump up that same hour and go seven miles back to Jerusalem full of joy. All right, if Jesus had stayed dead, they would have stayed in hiding. If we go back to our text in verse 17, we know that these two followers of Christ walking to Emmaus, it was Cleopas and probably his wife, Mary, but we don't know for sure. They were sad. And then in verse 21, they're clearly confused about everything that has happened. And then in verses 28 and 29 that we just read, it says, so they drew near to the village, which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. It's not explicitly stated here, but there was certainly and obviously still very real danger for these followers of Christ to be out walking around at this point. And so they urged Jesus to stay with them, probably at least partially for that reason and certainly because of the way he was opening the scriptures to them. So the disciples at this point are still sad, they're still confused, they're still afraid. We don't see any of them going around and boldly preaching the gospel. When do they come out of hiding? It's the moment their minds are open to the scriptures and their eyes are opened to see the risen Christ. That's the first step in their transformation and of course we know that transformation is consummated next, to when they encounter His Spirit who empowers them to carry out the work on earth that He began. So now, they're no longer concerned about being out at night. They're no longer concerned about being identified as His followers. They are now completely devoted to advancing the kingdom of God no matter the consequences to themselves. And there were consequences. Why? It's all because of an encounter. What a profound change that occurred immediately once they encountered the risen Christ. And that radical shift in disposition and in attitude and in their actions concerning the gospel is alone by itself, very compelling evidence that the resurrection of Jesus actually did occur. It is not only compelling evidence of the resurrection, it's a lesson that all of us should heed today. Because we can teach and preach Jesus all day long, and we need to. But until we have a true encounter with the resurrected Christ, both through His Word and supernaturally in our hearts by His Spirit, Listen, we may be believers, even disciples, but we will not live the kind of devoted life that these early disciples did, not until we encounter him for ourselves. And that brings us back to our original question that we posed in the beginning of this message. Have you encountered the risen Christ for yourself? As we consider that question, in the final moments of this gathering, I'd like to point out a wonderful illustration of how that encounter happens right from the end of our story that we just read. But first, we, we read earlier in John 6:44. I just want to mention again, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John 6:65, 6, he explains to his disciples that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So clearly, our ability to even encounter Him is wholly dependent upon Him first, drawing us. Any encounter with the resurrected Christ must first be initiated by Him. And I, I find this wonderfully illustrative. We're back in verse 15 of our story as the two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus intently focused on Jesus and the events surrounding his death. Luke says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. You see, they needed to have an encounter with the risen Christ. They were full of sorrow completely dissatisfied with the outcome of the events unfolding in their lives they needed to encounter jesus but first he had to come to them he had to draw them and that's exactly what he does in this story and yet there's a second piece to this process as jesus's brother james wrote in chapter 4 verse 8 of his letter he said draw near to god and he will draw near to you there's a part in all of this for us to play In his revelation to John, Jesus says to him, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20. You see, he draws near to us. He knocks on the door, but we have to open it. If we're to encounter Jesus, he must draw us first, but then we have to respond we have to invite him in we have to draw near to him and if we go back to verse 29 in our story as Jesus first drew near to the disciples on the way to Emmaus just as they finished their walk and he was about to leave how do they respond to his coming to them it says they urged him strongly saying "What? stay with us come in let's not miss the fact here that after he drew near to them, they invited him in. Now what part of that do you think was an accident? What part of that was chance? What part of that was random? Now this is exactly how his word says that we're to encounter him. He draws us to himself and then we invite him in which is exactly what he demonstrated in his own life here on earth. And it is exactly how we encounter him today. Okay? You're not here this morning by accident. You're not here by chance. In fact, there's nothing random about this moment. Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who is alive and well, has drawn us together here, right here, right now, this morning. So the only question left for us to answer is, will you invite him in? Let's pray. Jeannie.